0: Father, thank you so much uh, for your love and your grace. Thank you for the holiday that which we just celebrated. I pray, Father, that as we go into the new year, that we continue to to honor you and worship you in all things. Lord, thank you for the faith that you've given us. Thank you for your spirit that dwells within us, each of us who believe in you. Um, Lord, please give us greater faith, continue to assuage doubt from our minds, uh, and let us have a deeper and renewed knowledge of you. Uh, on a daily basis. We love you and thank you so much. Thank you for this time where we can gather and worship your Son, who is worthy of our praise and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so today I would like to welcome us back to our sermon series in the Gospel of John. Uh, Many of you were with us over these past four weeks where we spent the season of Advent walking our way through um, some of the Old Testament offices, which were a shadow of the promised Christ. But Now today, as we get back into John's gospel uh, and his Holy Spirit-inspired narration of Jesus's life and ministry, uh, we're going to begin preaching through chapter 17. So if you want to turn there, that's actually where we're going to be, John chapter 17. If you're using one of the books in front of you, it's page 849. It'll be up on the screen. There it is uh, as well once we begin to read. Now I said this uh, in last week's newsletter, and this is actually one of my favorite chapters of the Bible. By the way, I should say, if you're not getting our newsletters, which we put out weekly, you can sign up for them online or just let me know. I can get you signed up for that. Um, but I said it's my favorite chapter, and I love it so much because we get to hear the heart of Jesus. It's a really personal, wonderful opportunity for us to hear sort of his affections. And really, in Scripture, there's two main prayers that we have from Jesus, So I guess I should say that there are two that are um, really most famous of his prayers. And one of those prayers is uh, what most people think of is the Lord's Prayer, right? Most people think of the Lord's Prayer first. It's that our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, uh, and on it goes. And then there's this one. There's this one in chapter 17, which is actually titled Jesus's High Priestly Prayer. It's, a, again, a very priestly, very pastoral prayer for his people. Now, believe me, I really enjoy the Lord's Prayer. Growing up, my mom had a a cross stitch that she hung in her dining room and I would sit there and I would, as I would eat, I would just uh, read it over and over and over again. Or when I would come home from school after I would grab a snack, I would kind of just stand there and stare at this thing while the Lord sort of burned that prayer into my heart, burned his word into my heart, wrote it on my heart, but burned the image of this cross stitch in my mind. Even now I can imagine sort of all the paisleys and all the stitchings that are going around the edges. It was a very sweet thing for me. And actually it's a way that the Lord really grew my heart towards him. But as the Lord wrote those words on my heart and I became so very fond of the Lord's prayer, uh, I I really began to understand, understood sort of who Christ is. But in this prayer, it's different. This prayer that we have in John chapter 17, again, Jesus' high priestly prayer is different than the Lord's Prayer because the words of this prayer, for me, are even more sweet because of what they contain. Because again, we get to hear not just faithful instruction, which in fact is what the Lord's Prayer is. The Lord is showing His disciples how to pray. But in this prayer, again, we're allowed to hear the affections of the Lord's heart. And that's why it's so sweet to me because again, we get this wonderful picture of Christ. So uh, if you would stand with me, let's read our passage for today. Uh, It's going to be, like I said, in John chapter 10, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 5. So uh, John 17, not 10. John 17, verses 1 through 5, if you would follow along with me. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. Let me pray one more time for us. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this prayer where we can go and see and hear Christ and his affections for you and for your will and and, and for his purpose. Lord, be with us as we hear this truth, as we have it practically applied to our lives and, and as we know and understand more about your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so something like this has been said before. It's not original to me, but just as a man cannot live without breathing, a person's soul cannot flourish without prayer. All right. Just as a man can't live without breathing, a person's soul cannot flourish without prayer. Prayer is what we do when we desire to express our longings to God. It's it's really the the the, the whole entire thing of, of of part of our faith. It's our way of petitioning to God the things that we need, the things that we want, our our troubles, our sufferings. It's our way of petitioning to God, who is gracious and compassionate and present always with us. Chapter 17 has within it some of Jesus's final direct words which he said before his disciples to his father only hours before that appointed time of his death on the cross. So it's a very uh, precious moment. Now, even though this chapter or this prayer as it's called Even though it's so famous and it's so known and it can and it has been really pulled out and studied by itself, this prayer doesn't stand alone by itself. It's not just some random thing sort of slotted into John's gospel. Jesus' prayer here is in fact intimately linked to everything that John has already laid out for us to know about Jesus and his purpose in his coming. They're, They're directly linked all 16 chapters prior 17, and then in the future, Jesus' prayer here has in view the very nature of the relationship between himself and God the Father, as well as the eternal plan of salvation, which uh, which includes the way in which the disciples and all believers fit into that plan. So this prayer, the entirety of chapter 17, has in view the nature of the relationship between Jesus the Son and God the Father, as well as the plan of eternal salvation for the disciples, as well as everyone who believes, which is why it's really common for commentators to divide this chapter into three parts. It's really common, and it's a really simple way for us to really process this beautiful and wonderful chapter, chapter 17, as we divide it into three sections, and this is how they typically divide it. Number one, Jesus prays for himself. That's verse 1 through 5, which we're talking about today. The the second section is Jesus is praying for his disciples. That's 6 through 19. And then Jesus prays for his church, which is verses 20 and 26. Again, we're obviously only going to be covering that first part. But this prayer is also talked about in the other Gospels. Right? We, we, we know that the other Gospels are called the Synoptic Gospels, and they're sort of a, more of a document, uh, documenting the life and steps, and, and John is trying to get us to understand the life and steps of Christ. But we see this prayer also in the other Gospels. It's in Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22. And in those writings, we're told that Jesus uh, went to a place. He went to a garden called Gethsemane, and in those Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we read how Jesus really he suffers in agony over what is looming ahead. He's in, he's in turmoil about what's to come. He is said to be in such physical pain, in such anxiety, that he in fact sweats blood. And That's a, a real, real turmoil that we're meant to understand. Now as we look at that, and then we look at how John depicts this same moment, we might think that those accounts... When held up against each other, when we hold the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John's Gospel, it might seem like they, that they don't go together. They might seem like they're, they're talking about two different moments of prayer, but they're not. And I want to quickly show you how that is or why that is. You see, doesn't it make sense when we step back and try to consider all that has happened so far in Jesus' life And ministry and what's about to happen, that Jesus would be wrestling with all sorts of emotions. Doesn't it just make sense to us? When we have a knowledge of the things that we've gone through and things that we think we might be going through, doesn't it make sense that we are wrestling with all sorts of emotions? So, in a human way, doesn't it make sense that Jesus would also be wrestling with all kinds of emotions? Now, what should be considered normal and what I think he's doing is displaying for us, he's displaying perfectly the great difficulty of having to put together and connect both suffering and obedience. I think that's what the, the, when you look at the Synoptic Gospels as well as John's narrative, I think that's what he's showing us. He's seeing the great difficulty of putting together and connecting our suffering along with our obedience. When we consider the cross, since we stand on this side of it, And we understand what actually happened to Jesus. He knew it was coming. When we consider the cross and the reality that Jesus knew, in fact, his purpose of coming, which was to redeem and reconcile God's chosen people, couldn't it make sense that we would learn that Jesus was both resolute in his his purpose as well as horrified in what was to come? Doesn't that just make sense? Couldn't it make sense that Jesus has such an understanding of the plan and purpose of God's will that he was both resolute in accomplishing that task as well as horrified what was about to happen to him? Again, I think that that's kind of a, a human response that we've seen from Jesus. And again, we struggle with this. We too are called to faithfully be obedient even when we suffer. And we struggle with these things. We struggle with this kind of anxiety and turmoil as we, uh, we work through the difficulties in our life, which is why the four gospels, I don't think, are contradicting each other. Rather, together, they give us a fuller picture of Christ as fully man and fully God. Together, when we apply them rightly, they give us a better picture, a fuller picture of Jesus as man and God. So, Let's look at how Jesus is praying here to himself, which is sort of the first section, if you remember. Let's look at how Jesus is praying for himself to the Father. Let's look at chapter 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now, up until this point in John's gospel, Jesus has told everyone that his hour has not come. Up until this point, he was consistently saying, the hour has not come. It is is not the time. Because there was, and he knew there was an appointed time for the Son of Man to be lifted up. He knew that there was an appointed time. But now, Jesus knows and says that the time has come. The hour has come. Arrived and he asked the Father that he would glorify the Son. He says, The hour has come, Father, glorify me. Now it's important for us to know what Jesus means by using the word glorify. It's important for us because if we don't understand this word, then we kind of miss the whole idea of what Jesus is saying. Because the word glorify, through our attempts to translate this into English, we can mean multiple things. The word glorify can mean multiple things, it could mean to praise or it could mean to honor someone. And those translations might seem like they fit really well in what Jesus is talking about, because God's purpose in and through the gospel was that the people of God would honor the Son just as they honor the Father. That's John five twenty three. That's what we've learned in the past. Because in this event, where the Son was to be lifted up in this horrible and shameful manner, which was on the cross, his obedience and action would create worship and praise around the world from men and women whose sins he would bear, right? This is his purpose in coming. So this sort of makes sense. And because of that, he does deserve our praise. He does deserve all honor, right? But that's not what this passage is saying. That's not what this context is telling us. It's not what it means. In this context, the translation for the word glorify means to clothe in splendor. All right? It means to clothe in splendor. So what does that mean? Well, Jesus here is in fact praying. What he's petitioning for from his good father is to be given back what was rightfully his. He's saying the, the work is to be completed. Please give me back what is rightfully mine. As D.A. Carson says that he says, he's asking the father to reverse the self-emptying entailed in his incarnation and to restore him to the splendor that he shared with the Father before the world began. This is what Jesus was talking about actually back in chapter 14, if you remember. He was talking to his disciples and he said to them, he said, I must leave. I have to go back to the Father. I must return to the Father. And if you love me, you would rejoice for me. Because of what it would mean to me. That's what he was saying. He was saying, I'm going back to glorify. The work must be completed. And the only way for that work to be completed is if I ascend back to heaven and complete the work that I was sent here to complete. And you need to understand what that means. In this prayer, when Jesus prays to be glorified, he's showing us his willingness, his willingness to obey his Father even unto death in order to have the work completed. And that's what the first part of Philippians chapter 2, in fact, informs us of. Now, you'll have to go. We don't have time. You're going to have to go and study that for yourself. So you can look up Philippians 2, chapter 2, and look into that first couple passages. As well, his glorification was not an end in itself. He says, Father, glorify me. But it wasn't an end in itself. His desire for glory was so that the Father would receive it as well. Look back at our passage. It says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. Now, this can sound backwards or foolish to those who don't have ears to hear. This can sound backwards. It even sounds foolish. Scripture informs us that it will sound foolish to those who don't have ears to hear it, but God is to be seen and worshiped in His splendor, in His glory, as He is glorified in the sending of His Son to death. He used to be praised. He used to be seen as the, the King, the ruler, the creator, the God that He is, and we are to, to glorify Him in His splendor in the fact that He did send His Son to death. Jesus is praying that their pre, that their God and Jesus and the Spirit, their predetermined plan of salvation would be completed just as He, that is God the Father, gave Him, that is Jesus, all authority over the people of this world so that He can provide for us eternal life. He's saying, let this work be done. Let it be completed. Rescue them, Father. Rescue them through me. Glorify the Son. Now, there's so much to understand in just... Verse two there's so much there uh, that, we, that there is to understand in regards to how salvation is given to us, so i 'm simply going to try and bullet point the uh the practical doctrinal truth that Jesus is talking about There's so much in just one verse, so it's really difficult. Verse two is in some ways a summary of what Jesus was teaching in chapter three, chapter six, and chapter ten There's so much there, so What I'm going to try and do again is just bullet point the doctrinal truths that Jesus is talking about, so here they are. God has sovereign authority over all things since he is the creator of all things, and he has given that authority to the Son. All right? And with that authority, Jesus is able to save and sustain his church for their good and his glory for eternity. Jesus' church, then, is everyone and anyone whom the Father gives to the Son to save, and because of that, no one and no thing is capable of removing them from the hand of the Son. Amen? Verse 2 is is really, it's one of those really sneaky, theologically dense verses, and I wish we could spend more time, but we can't. We have to go on to verse 3. But I would encourage you to go back and read chapter 3, 6, and 10, and you get a better understanding of what verse 2 is talking about. So verse 3, this is what it says. "This And this is eternal life. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Here we have another important word. Here we have another important word that we must understand. What does it mean to know the only true God. What does it mean to know the only true God? To know God means more than simply growing in an intellectual grasp of the truth. All right, It's, it's more than just uh, intellectual assent. Think of how this relates to yourself. How is it that you feel most known? All right. How is it when you feel known by someone? Let me use sort of a a silly example before I make my point. Do you feel more known when somebody knows your birthday? Or do you feel more known by this person if they reach out to you and communicate with you because they know that it's your birthday? Obviously, you feel more known by the person who actually reaches out and does something about that Relationship, Knowing someone and the knowledge that Jesus is trying to articulate here is a knowledge that involves affection and commitment. It's not just intellectual knowledge. It's just not knowing someone's birthday. It's, in fact, celebrating someone's birthday. It's a knowledge that involves affection and commitment. Therefore, this eternal life that Jesus has the authority to provide us with must be more than just everlasting life. It must be more than just everlasting life. It's not merely everlasting life, rather. It couldn't be just everlasting life because what we know is that both the sinner and the saint are guaranteed to live forever. We know that both the sinner and the saint are guaranteed to live forever. The only difference is where and with whom it is spent, right? The eternal life given by Christ is to be understood as an intimate personal relationship with the one who is everlasting and eternal. It's a personal relationship. The church is made up individually of corporate body. We are corporately made up of individuals. We are in an intimate personal relationship with the one who is everlasting and eternal. There's an understanding of fellowship when the creator declares that we will be his people and he will be our God. There's an understanding of fellowship, of connection, of intimacy, of commitment. Jesus continues on in verse 4. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. It's interesting that Jesus says that he's accomplished the work that the Father gave him to do. He's, he, he's accomplished it. He's, the, the cross hasn't even come yet. And he says, I've accomplished the work that you sent me here to do. And then he asked for the Father to glorify him once again. But as we think about that, if we were to, to sit back and sort of meditate, which I did because it kind of threw me for a loop that he was speaking ahead of time, if we actually think about this, it's actually not that strange. It's not that strange in what Jesus says. Jesus is simply showing us, again, his resolution in the faith that he has for the Father. His confidence in the Father's will to be accomplished allows him to presume faithfully that his work will be accomplished. It will be finished. Jesus knows that it will be finished because of his faith and confidence in the Father's Will and that he will be brought back to heaven where he will be restored to his rightful place of glory. Jesus knows these things to be true. Now, a little side note here. This is not Jesus saying that he's designed to sort of uh, set aside or give up his incarnation. He's not saying that he's, he's, he's asking to let go of his incarnation. After all, he, when he ascended back to heaven, he didn't leave his body behind, right? He, 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 rather, he rose with his transformed, glorified body, which by his wondrous grace shows us what we can expect in that life when we believe and live eternally with him. That's a promise. Jesus isn't saying that he just wants to leave this all behind. In fact, he takes his glorified body with him to heaven, telling us, what life will be like eternally with him. In this prayer, Jesus was looking beyond the humiliation. Jesus was looking beyond the suffering that awaited him at the cross, and instead he focused on the joy that was set before him. Jesus knew what was coming, It wasn't a surprise to him. He knew the purpose of why he came, but he chose to set his focus on the joy that was set before him. That is the glory that rightfully belonged to him when he returned to heaven, which is also directly connected to what was accomplished on the cross for us. Ultimately, it was to glorify the Father by returning to heaven. But in that, it also accomplished a great gift for us. He suffered and died for our good and ultimately His glory. Now, everything I just said, as it usually happens, can be summed up by Scripture. Everything I just said can be summarized by Hebrews 2, verses 8 through 11. And let me read this for us. It says, Now putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing outside of His control. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. How is it that we might know this to be true of us? How do we know that this is true for us? How do we know that we are Jesus' brother or sister? Luke 10, verse 22 All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. True knowledge of God is given to us by Jesus Christ. He is the one who chooses to reveal the Father to us. Have your eyes and ears been opened to this truth? Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you you understand? Do you have ears and eyes to hear and see this truth? If this is so, what might your response, your your faithful response be today? If you hear this in your life, even if you're a believer, what might your faithful response be today in understanding this truth? God's word for eternal life has been given to us by Jesus, who is the word. This is found in the Scripture and in the Scripture alone. We have this information right in our hand. It tells us that we are saved from God's wrath over our sin by faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone. And as we've seen today, it is only through the Son that we can know God. It is only through the Son that we can understand this gospel, and this happens for us through His grace and by His grace alone, which informs us that all of this is accomplished by God for His glory alone. Everything that is accomplished, everything is done. We have the scriptures. We have been given faith in Christ by God's grace and for God's glory. You and I are set free from the burden of believing that we must earn our right standing with God. This gift of eternal life is not something that we can achieve through our character or good, enough, uh, or, or good enough deeds or right standing with God or good enough conduct. It really is a gift. It really is a gift. In fact, a free gift given by God that we receive by admitting that we are sinners who need to repent and believe and trust in Jesus Christ. That is something that we need to hear on a daily basis as believers. And we need to share this with non-believers because this is the greatest gift available for everyone. You and I are part of this work that was given to the Son before the world existed. We're part of that work. So I'll ask that we honor the Father by yielding our lives to the Son. And that might look differently for all of us, But again, we should honor the Father by yielding our life to the Son, the one who deserves to be clothed in splendor. If you would pray with me. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your willingness to reveal yourself to us through your Son. We are so grateful that He is the exact imprint of your nature, that we can understand how you love us and care for us. Lord, be with us as we walk this out, as we process this with our our friends and our family and in our community groups, Lord. Help us to remember this gospel as we too suffer and try to walk out our obedience and our faith with fear and trembling. It's in your son's name that we pray, amen.